Welcome to the SeaWorld the Conservators podcast. Today we're talking about paintings conservation. I'm Jenny Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in Kimmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Hey guys. So sort of we're doing like two specialists in once this season, which is quite we are, exciting. I'm very really. excited about that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Because yeah, yeah. we did time-based media was the previous episode mm-hmm. and now we're, we're on paintings. The thing that I disappoint people by saying I don't do. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favourite thing about people, people hearing that I'm a conservative. They immediately go, you work on paintings? No, not paintings. So really, paintings conservation is probably the most glam that you get in conservation. I sort of feel like that might be the the rock star one where people are like, I know what that means. But it's the big projects, you know, like the really cool stuff that you see articles and features about and the videos. And since there's a lot that we obviously don't know about this particular specialism, but we've got a special guest host with us who can help us with that. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? So I'm Aviva Bernstock and I'm a professor at the Courtaulds in London and I teach postgraduate students to restore paintings and to do technical examination. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Aviva, how did you get started in this? What is your journey into conservation? How did you discover paintings conservation? What's your thing? Um, I was very lacking in imagination. I did a neuroscience degree with the intention of becoming a medical professional, but I also wanted to do, I really like painting making paintings and painting and making things in general, also textiles and knitting and sewing, all craft things, weaving and spinning. So I really wanted to go to art college, but in fact, my it wasn't financially viable to do that, having done my neuroscience degree. And so I asked the careers advice people at Sussex University where I'd done my degree what can I do with a science degree um, that's got to do with art? And they they told me, oh, hmm, well, hang on, we'll flip through our little you know, books here, pre-digital this was. And they said, oh, somebody, somebody who did chemistry here went to the National Gallery, did painting conservation. That was David Bomford, who's built um, very well-known, now retired painting conservator from the National Gallery. And, and I said, oh, okay, okay, I'll try that. So... Um, so I went and I went and um, went for an interview at the Courtauld, and then luckily they took me on because I think in those days it wasn't so hard to get into painting conservation. So uh, that's how how I did it, and I just worked. I've worked in that field ever since. That's a good origin story, especially it had a very unexpected start. It, yes, <laughs> oh, hard science. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, but I love that stuff though. Like it, you know, it just nourishes me that we sometimes have these mm. wonderful origin stories or like previous careers or, you know, the things that we studied were completely wild sometimes. And I just love that about our profession, that there are just so many people who bring that to the to the field. That's great. I love that. Interesting that we come from art as well, most often as well, that it's, it's kind or of... Archaeology. <laughs> or archaeology. But it's often the sort of uh, the mix between the art and the science that really gets us. Um, yeah, that's true. Which is really nice because we are obviously expected to be extremely technically skilled and also please know all of the science uh, Mm. and understand all of the things which I've heard from a number of students so many students is like how can we be scientists and this and that and also be able to make lace and like whatever (laughs) like my first question which is perhaps a silly one uh but i I liked it because chloe you wrote it down in your mind map uh which was 
when is a painting not a painting or when is a painting a painting, which I really enjoyed because I was like, wait, I'm, now I'm having an existential crisis. Um, what, what is a painting? Because you work with painted surfaces, Chloe, but I don't, do you consider those paintings? I'm genuinely curious. I have no idea. So I work with large painted textiles and yeah. we very obviously bring paintings, conservation thoughts into this um and we have a lot of books about it in the in the studio and we consult paintings conservators but i don't i consider those textiles that i use the not that i sort of uh, borrow the knowledge of paintings conservation for but mm. then we we very much wouldn't do in painting for example mm, we would use okay, the yeah. sort of the the textiles conservation ethics that you know don't don't add anything else don't sort of make it look um complete or or anything like that so that's where i'm coming from because there's also lots of i mean you do a lot of painted wood and stuff i do painted textile i haven't actually done any painted wood for a very long time but aviva do you what's your um specialism i suppose in terms of the the structure of a painting that you're most interested in how do you feel about the differences between the different types of materials that are considered a painting the broader question is what a painting is um yeah i mean i think it's interesting that you you talk about textiles there are separate issues here one is okay so if you have a textile normally it's not stretched although i could be wrong about that uh, if if a canvas is stretched on a stretcher or a strainer normally it's considered a, a painting but I, I can see that there are stage sets that might include uh, textiles which are stretched as well so mm. i think that you know there is a blurred definition there and the second question was about w- whether you in paint or don't in paint losses which is a whole separate mm ethical mm. question and depends on a, a great range of factors but to answer your question it, it's a difficult one I, I'm I'm not a specialist in any particular support but normally uh, the paintings that I see or supervise the conservation of are on wood so they might be from any century from medieval ah. to contemporary or they could be from all over Europe so different sorts of wood they could be on canvas which is very common or cotton cotton duck uh, which is very modern, or a range of other fabrics. If there are contemporary works of art that are on other fabrics, um, they may be works of art that are painted, or they may have other materials that are associated with them. They may, may be painted in different media, like um, typically uh, egg or oil for early paintings, or glue, uh, other sorts of proteins, and then more modern paintings, gouache, watercolours. Sometimes we have works on paper adhered to canvas, so there are sort of composites that, that are dealt with. We have paintings that are lined, so you've got double textiles, if you call them textiles. I would say it's interesting what you say. I mean, if you have an unstretched painting, there are quite a few artists who don't stretch there. They, they just display their works of art there. I don't know if they're considered paintings or textiles. Perhaps the artist defines whether they're paintings or textiles, and there might be different viewpoints about whether one would reintegrate losses or not, either mechanically, if you've got a tear or a, a rip or something in the canvas or in, in, in the textile, whether you repair that or leave it loose. I have no idea what a textile conservator would do. I know that I've seen textile conservation where people wash things, you know, the way that we probably wouldn't wash a painting, a whole the whole thing, uh, in the same way as paper conservators seem to dip things in water and liquids which is terribly scary oh they do yeah so um (laughs) i'm not an expert (laughs) i would say not an expert in anything 
But there are also paintings on metal supports. There's copper, there's sometimes on slate, on stone. So there are a great range of supports. Oh, of course. And not all paintings can serve German easel paintings, but yes, of course, there are mm-hmm. wall paintings that are on a variety of walls. Mm. So there's a, there's a crossover between textiles, painted surfaces, painted objects. I can't ask the question of what interests me most because it's not really dependent on the support for me. It might be dependent oh. on the quality of the work of art. So I really like ah. amazing works of art. You know, it, yeah, yeah. It, I like to be awe-inspired by the mm. usually technically brilliant, but not necessarily so. It could be a collection mm. of factors. But it, it wouldn't be dependent on whether it was on panel or, or canvas or linen, cotton duck. I don't think I could say <laughs> categorically that it would be dependent on that. Or, yes, I love the back of that picture. Gorgeous. <laughs> Although, you know, that, that's true. Sometimes you get a beautiful oak panel, which has got the original kind of, you know chisel marks you're thinking well oh yeah it's in great condition it hasn't warped there's no no structural work that's been done or something that Mm. hasn't been lined that's very old and you're thinking wow is that something that came as a shock to you when you started in your very early days of what you'd you'd sort of be faced with i suppose like when the when the careers counselor said to you paintings conservation did you think oh paintings therefore easel paintings therefore stretched canvas or did you think wow that's a broad term certainly didn't know anything about it when i started but i've mm. done a lot of painting because my mother's a textile artist and my father's a wood sculptor oh, you know, so i wow. had a great a bit of a knowledge about making art and that you could make mm. it out of different things and that you could paint things. So I had kind of a broad understanding of what art was. I've always loved looking at art, so right from a very early age. So I, that's my main thing is that I love looking at, at art. And the rest of it is just the job that I do because it brings me into that realm. You know, I'm really happy because, yeah, I might have been happy as a doctor maybe, but I really love looking at art. So that's that's what I would do on my weekends. So if we're going to stay in the definition, just the very beginning, we've talked about substrate and the variations thereof. I assume there's plenty of variations when you leave the substrate as well. So my textiles tend to be, so it can just be a bedsheet with some house paint on it. It can be uh, a, a George Tuttle Victorian banner and it's got uh, the silk layer that painted stretched and then it's got I think a size and then the sort of the white underlayer and then there's the oil painted image and then I believe no glaze or varnish layers it's just it's just the, the naked oil paint I believe mm. um, so that's definitely layer structured and some of my stuff definitely isn't. I'm guessing it's the same with paintings on whichever substrate we're talking about. I guess that's the thing, though, you know, like painted surfaces, like they can mean so many different things. And like it's, yeah. And yeah, so the, there is definitely more crossover than I think there mm. is, I think. I'm still adamant that I don't work on paintings, but I certainly will work on painted decoration. Um, and, you know, that's that's just sometimes layers on wood and varnish on top and all sorts of stuff like that so uh, yeah that's a that's an element there isn't there i guess may- maybe paintings is where anyone has used paint <laughs> there may be that um that the purpose of something or its function determines the definition so if it's a stage just display and it's hanging freely then it might be a painted textile and if it's a, a thing that's that's on the wall in a frame in a museum it might be considered a painting so perhaps the, the context in which the, it's intended to be shown, by that definition, you might, it might change function. So perhaps a stage 
free-flowing stage um, design, which isn't stretched, could subsequently be stretched uh, later, not by the artist, but somebody else, but its new function becomes an easel painting. And you can see this a few times. Okay, so you have old pieces, which in the 19th century were broken up and sold on the art market. So you get fragments of old pieces in many museums. We've all seen them. And sometimes you can put them together. So their function has changed. But usually they're owned by different museums and not going to be put together back and put back in the church. They're displayed now as individual works of art. So people, for example, curators have made decisions about display. So instead of displaying them in a gilded frame as an individual work of art, they might display them in a kind of clip frame to suggest that they are fragments. So perhaps the definition is related to function. Oh, mm. I like that. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I mean, whenever I think about um, my the, the painted surfaces that I'm dealing with, I'm de- I'm thinking of, you know, consolidation. Do they are they coming off? Are they are they still attached? Are they attached enough? Do I need to add a consolidant underneath? Um, so when you're teaching your students, Avivo, are you? How do you deal with this? What, what what stages do you go through before you start thinking about the the treatments? Yeah, well, normally the way that it works, the courtauld is the graduate students are are given paintings to work on, which have a a range of of different challenging problems. Some might involve consolidation. Usually it's not just consolidation, although it could be just a matter of um, re-adhering underbound or lost paint or flaking or tenting paint. Um, Or usually there might be some other issues. It could be surface dirt, there might be uh, tears in support, there might be warping of the wood, you know, splits in the wood. There could be layers of varnish, which are yellow, um, overpaints. So all of these things need to be thought through. Usually prior to making decisions about what what the goals for treatment are, there's a range of, of methods of technical examination which are done. So you might, if the painting is seriously flaking, and that's, you usually do a bit of consolidation first. Um, mm-hmm, and you try yeah. and do a bit of consolidation to make sure the paint doesn't fall off. So that, that might be an emergency first thing to do. Yeah. And then after what you would do is you would choose a method which wouldn't necessarily interfere with subsequent issues that you may also want to deal with. So if you were using a, an aqueous consolidant and you then subsequently wanted to remove something with water, you would think about whether that was going to work. And so um, sometimes reconsolidation is necessary. So I'm addressing the question in, in terms of consolidation, but normally mm-hmm. there's more than one reason not always, mm-hmm. but usually more than one reason for treating a painting. And it's a combination of different things, goals for treatment, which are developed. So once the, the paint is adhered and the, you can move the painting around, it's a good idea to do technical photography. So you might do, um, you might take some photographs before treatment. You would then do maybe look in UV light to see if there's an actual resin varnish or some distribution of varnish. You could do make an infrared image so you could see something of the Say you had a yellow varnish, then you could see something, the technique underneath, perhaps the losses. Then you might do an x-ray if you possibly could to see more about the structure of the painting and its condition. Um, And you might also look under the microscope, first of all, to see how the the painting is adhered, understand something of the technique, look at the back and the front, make a judgment about about whether there's dirt you need to remove. Because if you you do consolidation, sometimes you're consolidating the dirt in that happens to be on the surface, I think that one through too. So there are a range of preliminary things that you, you would do. And after that, you would think about, and I talk about the context again, where is this painting from? What are the demands on the work of art? Where will it hang? Does it have other Rembrandts that you happen to have had restored or that are not restored? You think about that. Is it going to back to the to Boston? Is it going to hang in the Courtauld Gallery? 
Is it going to a National Trust property at Kenwood House? And these all might play into the decisions that you make and you might think about what's there, what's the what's the situation that you have for display, both environmental and also aesthetic. So all of these things will play in to that. And so the, the condition of the painting and the demands on the work and its context will influence the decisions you make about what you want then to do, whether it's an intervention or preventive thing. What, what's the decision-making process around, you know, when to remove varnish, when not to? How discoloured is too discoloured? If you have a painting that's more than a few years old, then 100 years old, it might have been varnished several times. So the, the cleaning cycle happens very frequently. And the reason for that is before the middle of the 20th century when synthetic materials became available, which were more stable. The natural resins that were used for varnishing um, were damar and mastic largely, and sometimes they were mixed with oil. So those darken quite quickly within about 20 or 30 years, depending on whether there's oil in them and how they're displayed. And sometimes paintings become quite invisible, so you can't actually see, or they might become unsaturated, so the, the varnish becomes brittle and unsaturated, so you can't really read the composition underneath. So there's a judgment that's made about you know how much, and that judgment's made differently in different countries so some museums like the getty museum i think um where paintings look quite free of varnish the, the sort of clarity of the varnish is highly prized so they might remove an old varnish and then put a, a clear varnish on and that's the way that they like to see pictures displayed whereas in the louvre for example there was a sort of an idea that you would thin the varnish and so leave a thin layer Oh, which was aesthetically pleasing. And there are different periods in the history of paintings. So paintings aren't one thing. Obviously, they come from different periods and you have to consider what might be original, what might, mm-hmm. what the original periods might have been. There's no way that you can bring paintings back to the way they were ever. Even after, even a few hours after painting, I would argue that a painting begins to change and that you certainly after a, a few months, a painting will have changed from the way it looked originally so that that consideration about how when to do it and how much to do it might depend on what the collection looks like what the viewpoint is what the history of the work is what was the was the idea that that it should look yellow Uh, is that the intention of the collection of the entire collection for me the most challenging conservation is probably removing dirt from uh, unvarnished paint Mm. surfaces so we're looking sort of mid-19th century onwards really unvarnished mm. paintings that haven't been protected by glazing. I think um, removing varnish was therefore compensated by other preventive activities like glazing and using uh, light that doesn't have too much UV. So there are various preventive measures. So part of becoming a, a paintings conservator, I would expect the students to understand, have a wide knowledge of material, knowledge about how light affects, how relative humidity can affect changes in materials, um, how oil can can bleach in sunlight and darken. So those sorts of things, but also degradations, other sorts of changes. So blackening of vermilion, for example, darkening of copper containing pigments that are bound in oil. These are commonplace changes that you see in, in paint films, whether they're on paintings or painted furniture or probably on textiles that are exposed to the light. So those material changes are something that that crosses discipline too but quite a lot is understood about pigments and paints and how they change now as when I was a student there was much less known about the individual sorts of deterioration Um, but now there's a there's something known about just about every pigment that's used by artists so you can have a sense of what's stable what's not 
what materials, how they degrade. And that all plays into the decisions you make in conservation, that knowledge, that, that idea that, that things have long physical histories and they haven't always been in the gallery. And therefore, they're, the degradation, the agents of degradation to which they've been subjected will be very, very broad and varied. And that also plays into decisions about treatment. So you have to look at, at what the consequences are of those those exposures. What has that led to? Do you find that because paintings have had such broad histories and have been in so many locations, do you um, sort of feel like a detective when you when you look at a painting and you can sort of work backwards and see where something has been? The thing is, you can't always tell exactly when the exposure happened. So the, t- the time frame, say, for example, blackening of vermilion, the time frame for blackening vermilion, I don't know what ha- how that how long that takes to happen, whether it happens within weeks or you know, under certain circumstances or whether it develops mm. over time. Certainly rates of fading of red lake, different red lake pigments have been researched. So 19th century red lakes, um, organic pigments made in the periods of the Impressionists have been much studied. And so we have a sense that Brazil wood fades very quickly. Quickly and madder lakes fade slightly less quickly, cochineal somewhere in between. So we have a sense of that temporal deterioration. To some degree, by looking in cross-section and doing technical analysis, you can work out when things happen, but not always. By looking mm. at pigments, sometimes you can see pigments that were used at a certain time, which went out of use at a certain time. So you have a sense, mm. uh, not always because it's very broad until the 19th century, really pretty much the same pigments were used. But now there's quite a lot of knowledge about use of materials and their deterioration. You can have a guess, but it's not always clear exactly when things happen. Mm. In terms of conservation treatments, there are some identifiable conservative actions. So the impregnation, for example, with wax resin happened in the Netherlands in the 1920s. And all of the paintings on canvas in the Netherlands, almost all of them were wax impregnated. And that was something oh, that wow. was done by conservatives. And in wow, the UK... I didn't know that. We people did uh, the same thing for a while, but not everything here has been wax impregnated. So there's a sort of history of conservation where you can sometimes identify when something might have been done in terms of intervention. So it's almost fashionable, like that was the thing that was done at the time. I guess like people might look back at us and parallel would be something to do. <laughs> well, we have stapled together ceramics, don't we? As a similar kind of, similar kind of, this is what was done at the time or oh God. Yes, there's definitely parallels there mm. for all sorts of different mm. types of conservation that there, there may have been, you know, fashionable things that were done at cer- certain times. And I think that's really, really interesting. There are usually reasons for it, though. So the wax impregnation was to prevent um, moisture, which is, of course, the Netherlands is a kind of damp place. As you yeah. pointed out earlier, the environmental conditions in museums and in, in their houses where some of these paintings were hanging were, were not perfect. So that moisture fluctuations will have been uh, an important part of degradation of canvas and it would have degraded mm. quite quickly. And so to prevent that, it's kind of logical. And so subsequently, there are obviously there's a downside to some conservation treatments. You know, you have wax resin, which is quite heavy once the paintings are impregnated. It, it, makes the painting a bit mm. heavier, it can darken mm. some grounds. I mean, the paintings may not have survived if they hadn't been wax impregnated. No, of course, there. yeah. Oh, I find that so interesting, the the sort of, you know, I don't know what a textile equivalent would, would be, impregnate something with B72 or something. And, oh, oh, don't God, say that. How do you, how do you, how do you, uh, you know, um, reverse that? Oh, it's a disaster, blah, blah, blah. But it could also just be powder at the bottom of a case now. Yeah. Obviously, conservation is too 
to prolong the life of the object so we can see it again for, for the next generation or generations mm. after. And you do the best you can to to do that, whether it's consolidation or removing something that's that's occluding the surface so you can actually see it or putting some non-reflecting glass in front of it and a backboard so it doesn't get damaged. I think all of these things would help. I'll tell you one thing that I found very instructive in my life. I for a period worked in Mumbai in in, uh, in India. Um, and in doing so, had a chance to look around the gallery's collection of Western art, which is a really fantastic collection in Mumbai, and it's displayed in an um, air-conditioned environment. But what I discovered is that many of the paintings that I'm used to seeing here by 19th and 20th century artists were just uncracked in really great condition. I was thinking, really? Because it's 90% relative humidity and boiling hot in here. But the reason for it was that they all had back backings of vinyl they had vinyl sort of what you saw used to see on car seats back backing boards and those backing boards that prevented the fluctuations which produced cracking so they were in better condition so preventing i know it's incredible and and contrary to that there were time in the store i saw one or two paintings which literally had turned to dust which had not been what? So what, wow. what i got was a big lesson in in yeah. active conservation and how you can really prolong the life of something by simply putting a backboard on it that's nice that's beautiful that is amazing yeah, that's yeah. nice I, lo- I love wow. learning lessons like that from around wow. the world where it's like something they found something that works with their environment you know like where they are how things are displayed in that place mm. and it's phenomenal so I'm really interested in the teaching parts of your career Aviva so when did you get into teaching and where's that brought you I came to the Courtauld in 1992, and that's when I became a teacher of postgrads, in, mm-hmm. mostly in easel painting conservation. But we also teach, uh, do some teaching for museum curators and a little bit for postgraduate diplomas and undergraduates. The bit that I do is technical examination. So uh, me and my colleagues teach introductions to material studies or materials and techniques, for technical studies of paintings for that broader, the Courtauld is an art history college uh, largely art history and curating uh, with conservation of, of easels and wall paintings so we in my in the conservation department do contribute to the teaching and so I did that from 1992 before that I was at the National Gallery in the scientific department um, and I've taught different elements of, of conservation but focusing largely on research so it might be research into different ways of cleaning paintings or um, I've always been interested in that specifically also materials and techniques of, of painting so paintings from the gallery and other collections and in collaborative research so you can work together with art historians curators oh that's fun and um and scientists and connecting up the challenges what really interests me is is connecting up the challenges of practical conservation decision making and doing with Mm. the information you get from technical analysis so that for me is the challenge it's you can know a lot about something you can identify elements of its physical history and condition and you can think about what you'd like to do but the doing part is is challenging sometimes so i appreciate that very well that that you might want to do something but it be diff- it's difficult to achieve and and I I find that that's the most for me the most interesting thing I try to to teach students to think about those things and to to do them <laughs> and and I, and to appreciate it when they find it challenging and to appreciate the arguments they make about the decisions they make and the compromises and I would mm. also say that as a scientist you're asking me personally as a scientist coming from a science background I found that compromise really difficult at first. I found it really hard mm. to be compromising. And, and now I am really good at it, but it's taken years. 
what's your favorite technique what what's the one that, that brings you the most sort of promise and and interest all right microscopy no hands down. Oh, yes yeah, you, the microscope. you know you can, <laughs> yeah 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 i know it's hard when you first i appreciate very well because i remember it vividly that when i first looked under the microscope at a painting i've I was too embarrassed to say I hadn't got a clue what I was looking for. It was really <laughs> difficult. But now, obviously, um, and I'm, I'm aware for the students, because the students probably feel the same way initially, you, you can begin to, to understand that. And then after a while, you get experience and you can see it's miraculous looking under the microscope at things. I love that. I love looking under the microscope. And I like technical photography under the microscope. So you can look at details and understand, you begin to understand sometimes incredible painting techniques and you, or inspiring painting techniques of, of works of art that you... So looking close up, so with an optimizer and then looking under the microscope is, for me, exciting. Have you ever had one of those really unscientific gut feelings about something and thought that Ooh. is definitely this? And yes, then you've done and I the keep analysis. It myself. Like, yes, <laughs> you keep it to yourself. Always. I don't do that. I, I would never say. I keep it in my head. You know, I've learned that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yes, of course. But no, I'm not saying anything until I. The analysis. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll never forget the time that somebody brought a little Lucas Signorelli in. I mean, some people always, I hate it, my colleagues, they always say things like, what's the most famous picture you've discovered? You know, because people will bring in oh, works of art. Yes. And sometimes it's <laughs> Vermeer. I have a Libby Sheldon brought, discovered a Vermeer. I, um, I once somebody brought in a, a painting by Lucas Signorelli and I, she didn't know it was. And I said, I knew that it was. I had my gut feeling. And it was, um, it was a very small painting, but I could see that there was a change in composition. The baby's legs seemed to have changed position. So I knew oh. from the National Gallery because they published x-rays of their Lucas Signorelli. But that was a characteristic of Lucas Signorelli. So indeed, the baby's oh, legs wow. changed. And I looked at the x-ray, I thought, yep. <gasps> So, so that's yes. that's the only time I'll admit that I. Lots of other times I've seen. I've seen. You know, there's a recently there's a there's a, going to be an exhibition in a couple. It's in a week's time. It opens at the Courtauld. It's sort of fakes. Okay, fakes. Oh yes. Gallery. Very exciting. So I've been involved in looking at some of the fakes. Um, some of them have been examined by students already. A lot of them are works on paper, but there are some other objects and also a few paintings that we know, we've known are not right for a long time. Some were examined. Students have been examining and conserving some of these these paintings. Yeah, and they've been mm. loaned to various exhibitions. And there are a few extras that I looked at recently. And sometimes it's there are times when I thought this was a real painting. This is not a forgery. And indeed, when mm. I did the technical analysis, I discovered it was a forgery. Oh, oh my wrong. god! That's that then wrong. it's a god. then it's a good forgery, isn't it? Really that's, good. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. Not surprising because Samuel Portold and the others who've given paintings to the gallery were good collectors and they had good advisors, so they they bought things that were good. So by and large, those things are genuine. But there are a few yeah. very convincing things. Your gut yeah, feeling, we, you know, doesn't always uh, win. And that's what we need analysis. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh no, that's wonderful. Amazing. That sounds amazing. Have you ever been asked, like, is this real or not, in like a genuine sense of like, we need to know? <laughs> Unfortunately, that happens every day. I'm not that interested in forgeries, generally speaking. Mm. More no, that's fair enough. But then I am involved with a, there's a TV program called Bake or Fortune, which is a, it, yes. with, with um, Philip Mould and Fiona Bruce. Their focus is on whether something's a forgery or, or genuine. So I'm a consultant on that program. So yeah, I've been I've been involved in it in that way um, mm, for a while. Yeah. But I would say that I'm more interested in, in the 
real works of art that are amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the reason you got into this rather than <laughs> yeah. the things that people do to rather debunking to someone yeah. else's really <laughs> really cool copy. It is, yeah, exactly. it is interesting how some they're very skillful forgeries. We touched on this earlier, and that was that you enjoy working with things like curators and art historians uh, and things like that in your work. Not not to pick favourites, but do you, do you have a favourite like group of people to work with or a type of scholar or academic or museum professional? I'm going to think back through the projects I've done. So I worked on Mark Gertler with Sarah McDougall, who's director of Ben Uri Gallery, which is an art historian and a curator, so both. So she and I have had an ongoing collaboration for a long time. And of course, my main collaboration is with Karen Sayre, and Barney Wright, who are the two curators at the Courtauld Gallery. And I also previously worked with Caroline Campbell, who's now the director of the the National Gallery of Ireland in Dublin. And she was a curator. She was the curator of older paintings at the Courtauld for a long time. And then, uh, of course, there are academic art historians who, who are fantastic to work with. And there are lots of others, actually. And then you've obviously worked with TV productions as well, because of Fake or Fortune. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed working with Philip Mould in particular because I, I know that he has a fantastic eye and he's also a very successful art dealer. And his views on conservation of voice are interesting because some of the, the conservators that we educate, so the, some will go and work in museums, but some will work in the private sector and work for dealers. And so he's very generous in hosting various seminars that we have for students. So he'll talk to the students about the dealer's view of what a conservator does and what that collaboration involves. It's sometimes a little bit controversial, but they need to know about these things. So um, oh, absolutely. it's different. It could absolutely. be different to the viewpoints. And and of course, the, the BBC TV show showcases that relationship, um, not, not necessarily the court told because the court told the relationship is with me and I'm doing the technical part, but other conservators are in the private sector who Philip works with. And that that's interesting because, of course, the destination of the students who are educated at the Courtauld will be quite diverse. Some national trust, they could be heritage organisations, international organisations, um, private sector people, you know, all, all kinds of destinations they might work in. You know, So it's important to know as broadly as possible how you're going to relate to and collaborate with other people who are caretakers of the works that you're conserving. Hi, we're with a very special guest interviewee here. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? And give us a bit of information about your origin story. That makes it sound like a superhero. <laughs> it does sound like I should be a Marvel character. <laughs> or disappointingly, I'm a conservator. Uh, my name is Polly Saltmarsh. I guess my origin story, if we're going right back to the beginning, was that I never knew what I wanted to do, fell into an art history degree, which I absolutely loved. Through that, learned about conservation and had a bit of a light bulb moment where this is the ridiculous career choice I wish to pursue now. <laughs> <laughs> I was incredibly fortunate that um, I got offered a place on the Courtauld Institute of Art postgraduate diploma in easel painting conservation. And um, yeah, it went from there, really. So that's where it began. Wonderful. Also, let's just first of all agree that all conservatives are superheroes. So actually, we should all be Marvel, Marvel characters. I also feel like we've all had that light bulb moment as well of, oh, wait, of course, that's a career. I knew about this. Also, I could do it. Hang on a minute. Yeah. I could do it. That's what I want to do. Now there's only a, that option in my yeah, life. Yeah. <laughs> so I understand that in your career, you've worked both in private practice and with large institutions. Can you tell us a bit about the biggest differences for you and how that came about? 
Yeah, so um, again, I'm very lucky. I did a, after I graduated, I did a year in the Netherlands and working at different museums and research institutes and then came back to the UK and quite quickly got an in situ job with a conservator called Sally Woodcock in Cambridge, which is where I live. And also was very lucky to get um, a part-time job on the Making Art in Tudor Britain project, the Portrait Gallery in London. So very quickly I was doing part-time jobs in both private practice studio and in an institution. You know, classically the six-month maternity leave has turned into kind of a job. I've been at the Portrait Gallery 13 years now. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Always apply for those maternity cover posts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't know where they're going to lead. And then worked with lovely Sally for eight years, who I'm, I'm so grateful to for teaching me so much. And um, now I run my own studio, again, thanks to Sally's support. So, yeah, it's um, so working. What I love is the blend of working um, both in private practice and in an institution. I think but having both of those jobs in tandem is beneficial for so many reasons. I think as many people that work in institutions it's so exciting to work with the collection that you get to know and grow with and understand the paintings but there is so much admin and paperwork and databases that um actually doing practical work sometimes feels like it's a treat <laughs> rather than the job whereas it's kind of flipped in private practice you do a lot of practical work and um there is a boring amount of admin that comes with that as well but a lot of it you're sort of at the bench as opposed to at the computer and it's a very different way of working, obviously, in an institution. The hours are more regulated and set. In private practice, especially if your studio is at the end of your garden, the working day slips into long days, weekends, and it's very difficult to, um, yeah, stop work is, a, is an occupational hazard, I think, <laughs> when you're freelance. So what's your approach to client expectations when you're working private practice? And that's with regards to like the visibility of your conservation. Ooh. I think that's a really, really good question. And I think in private, I mean, also in institutions a little bit, but more in private practice, you're a big part of the job is managing client expectations. Mm. And that can kind of work two ways. Um, I've been to see, I do a lot of work for churches and I've been to churches and Often paintings there have had a quiet life, gently rotting on the church wall. And, and, you know, sometimes people are like, is it worth saving this thing? And you're like, totally, we can rescue it. It'll be great. And there's the other extreme where you go and see a painting, which is in fabulous condition. You wouldn't do anything to it, but someone's keen to show they've cared for it and done something. And again, managing, again, I'm very good at talking myself out of work, but, you know, for this (laughs) object being like, you don't need to do anything. And sort of talking through what could be done and the pros and cons of doing it. But there is always the client that wants something to look brand new. I don't do much work for dealers, but obviously dealers are looking for a slightly different aesthetic and trying to have the conversation where age cracks are good. It's part of it. It'd be weird if a painting didn't have age cracks or showed its age in any way. So it's usually a, a you sort of have to guide them in what is, you know, appropriate ethically and realistically for the object. And a lot of it is talking through the process with people because most people have no idea, you know, I mean, people are familiar with the repair shop and programs like that, but um, actually talking through what can be done and what's, what, how, what's a good stopping point as well. Um, Obviously working on paintings, it's working through layers of, older old varnish you can clean you can take something right back but it's always not always appropriate and it's not always good for the object so there is a lot of client discussion and um 
I usually go and see paintings normally in people's homes so we can talk through what their expectations are and then look at the painting together and kind of work out a program together of what's suitable and obviously the other other problem with freelance work is as everyone knows it's a conservator till you start work on a painting or any object you have no idea how it's going to respond to treatment and of course the ones you think are going to be trickier a dream and the ones you like this is going to be a walk in the park are the ones you spend hours using mixed china work out to take a varnish off and i think that's the trickiest thing is estimating is still a really dark art and trying to get that right is it's always difficult because you know I have a real my soft spot my Achilles heel is an old granny with a terrible painting <laughs> and you want to do your best with their awful family portrait because it's the only painting they have and it means the world to them but um you know you also can't charge them tons of money to do it so that's I think in freelance very difficult always trying to estimate properly if you're time and not underselling yourself is is really challenging and, you know 10 years down the road I still struggle with getting estimates spot on that's so relatable for me it's uh, grannies with the little ceramics yeah, <laughs> I'm terrible I'd like to say I do work on some really nice things as well not just terrible church paintings and old granny <laughs> stuff but I have a real soft spot for grannies it's, it's, how it is. it's not good for me <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I enthusiastically contacted you, completely out of the blue, <laughs> was because I um, simply Googled freelance paintings conservator, private practice or painting cons- conservation studio. And I looked at several websites and they're all beautiful. But there was something about yours that just absolutely jumped at me. And I'm, I think it was it was the communication and it was the use of your language and it was the amount of information that you provided and it comes across as informative and professional um, you also put a really nice bit about the differences between <laughs> conservation and restoration as well I was like yes that's that's it well it's like the questions you're always asked why are you not yet restorer oh god okay here we go I think the court told was a good place to learn because we have to mm. do these um was horrific at the time but you have to stand up at the end of every term and deliver your work and your thought processes and it, oh god it's horrible but it does really make you think about you know why you do things and how to communicate with people definitely about your choices and what you've decided to do and I think that is reflected in hopefully how I sort of try and talk to people because I think there is still this kind of Oh, conservation so mysterious and you know and it's like it's really it's not rocket science people really <laughs> it's a job so yeah that's great that you that came across on the website thank you mm. but I think I've always been very keen on public engagement I do a lot of work for the National Trust and I'm always really happy when we do conservation and action days where you're doing stuff in front of the public and you get crazy questions but it's really <laughs> I do love the opportunity to talk because I love I love my job I'm so grateful to do it and you know like I said it's nice to explain to people that it isn't you know it's not a mysterious work and why what we're trying to achieve and why we're trying to do it and you, you know pay your National Trust membership and this is what it all goes towards looking after all these objects and sometimes we can't do the whole bells and whistles kind of treatment but we can do stuff to stabilize and monitor and stuff that might be a bit boring like surveying and things but it's all really critical to making sure those collections are well cared for for future generations and I think public engagement is something I'm quite passionate about in the fields definitely. It's really key isn't it it's key to other people's understanding of what we do and why we do stuff and even sort of how much money and time it will take to do it. 
So what's your, I mean, this is one of those really like lovely standard interview questions. What's your favourite period of painting? I'm one of those people that I can work on anything. And when I've worked mm-hmm. closely and learned more about it, that is my favourite thing. But I think <laughs> yeah. the period I'm most familiar with, um, partly through my mum who loves Tudors and all Tudor art, and then getting the job at the Portrait Gallery and doing the amazing research project into materials and techniques of Tudor and Jacobean painting. That is my soft spot. I'm a sucker for a Tudor portrait. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm lucky to work at the Portrait Gallery that has, you know, one of the best collections in the world of those objects. So, yeah, and we were very lucky because obviously the gallery's reopening this week, in fact. And oh, wow. Yeah, so everyone must come to the Portrait Gallery. But because it was shut, we had a real opportunity for working on things that are just always on the wall. So it was a really lovely time in the studio. Everyone had really exciting projects to work on. So I was lucky to work on some beautiful things during that period. So finally, what's been your favourite type of damage you've ever Ooh. seen that has occurred to an artwork? I found this the hardest question um, to answer because there's so, I can suddenly think of so many examples, which is hilarious. Oh, wow. Um, oh, my God. All of them would be fine, you know. <laughs> I might give you my top three favourite. Oh, phenomenal. Perfect. Um, so uh, I do a lot of work for the Cambridge Colleges and um, a lot of their lovely, amazing portraits hangs in dining rooms. And, um, oh, no. Yeah, you know what's coming. So <laughs> and then one of the people who looks after the art is very he's one of my favorite clients he has a very dry wit about him and he just phoned up one day and was like oh i think we've got a problem um i think there might be sticky toffee sauce on one of our century like, <laughs> portraits and it's like okay all right let's come and have a look and this thing hangs really high in the dining room so someone's got an amazing aim and we got it off and sure i don't know how he identified it or whether it was him that did it but it was it must have been like sticky toffee so it was so sticky and disgusting the next two examples are both beautiful church things because I love crazy heraldic beasts I do a lot of work on royal coats of arms and they have um herald you see the supporters of the royal coats of arms as you'll see on your passport a unicorn for Scotland and a lion for England and in very early royal coats of arms they have quite alarming genitalia <laughs> And I've, we've oh, worked on a Royal Coats of Arms where the Victorians have basically gone, this is way too rude, and kind of blacked out. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. As soon as you Martin. said Jenna Taylor, I was like, oh, the Victorians have got involved, have they? Okay. <laughs> and it was done in such a way that it makes it so more obvious that, you know, if they'd have just quietly left it, but it's these big black like rectangles it's just it was so comedy value it was amazing (laughs) my third example is also a church painting where something had happened there was a massive tear in the canvas and probably the best tear mend I've ever seen was obviously canvas for people that aren't familiar with paintings as objects obviously their canvas tensioned onto a wooden stretcher a frame and something had impacted it caused this huge tear and what they'd done to fix it was attach a baton of wood on the back and then just nails the canvas directly on phenomenal <laughs> i mean it sounds brutal but to be fair it kind of kept it in plane for another 200 years or however long it would be so it was not how we go about things today but you know it was effective wow <laughs> i could go on that's, so that's like one hilarious. step away from a steeple gun i love it <laughs> Well, yeah, if they'd have had one, I'm sure that would have been the preferred option. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's similar to what we were talking about with Aviva in the in the episode, that, that sometimes you have a method of conservation that, boy, would you not do now? But it was, it, I mean, it still was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
something I'm really aware of is it's so easy to judge. And yeah. I think when you're a student, yeah. you're very high, oh my God, you know, how could they do these things? And I think the more you do it, the more you're like, they were just doing, they were doing what they could with the materials they had. You know, a lot of the time, you know, past conservation treatments, as much as we swear over them now, it, they thought it was the bee's knees at the time. I think, well, yeah. they were doing the right thing. We may question that now, <laughs> but you know, it's very easy to judge. And then, you know, we've always been, we've all been there. We're like, oh God, it's just not working. What 200 years from now, people will go, what's wrong with these people as well? <laughs> It'll all come back around. This time I'm reviewing On Canvas, Preserving the Structure of Paintings by Stephen Hackney from the Getty Conservation Institute in 2020. This book can be summarised as all the information you'd need if you were a non-specialist in charge of the care of paintings. This sounds a bit like damned by faint praise, but there is such a breadth of types, materials, damages and treatments covered here that while a specialist would probably spot gaps and nuance, it will provide a thorough grounding. (laughs) Get it? Well, if you don't, then you should read the book. It's organised into three parts, building up from the basics of structure and the methods to deterioration routes that paintings suffer, and then to the things that conservators can do to help. Part one, structure and history, starts with the chapter Preparation of a Canvas for Painting, which obviously describes different ways that painted surfaces have been prepared over time, but also outlines the things that one might encounter when faced with a canvas painting. If you know how something is made, you're more likely to know how it has deteriorated and so how to care for it. Historic Examples is a lovely chapter too, because it includes a conservator's favourite things. Photographic Examples with descriptions of materials, methods and constructional details from works throughout history. Chapter 3, Production of Woven Textiles for Painting, is a clear winner for me, and a whole chapter on lining as a feature of historic changes over time was surprising as a non-specialist, but obvious when you think about it. Part two of the three is dedicated to properties and ageing, and it starts off surprisingly mathematical, with chapter five describing mechanical properties of the different components of a painted canvas, such as stretching pressures and warping. Then we have a lovely chapter on the structure of cellulose and its ageing, which is great for all organic conservators, to be honest, and pays a lot of attention to the material responses of canvas to the various agents of deterioration. Chapter 7, Dying, Curing and Ageing of Oil Grounds and Paints, is obviously back to being highly specialised. And there are some gorgeous photographic examples of the results of these routes of deterioration. After physical deterioration and some lovely images of age cracking and stuff, we have the third and final part on, drumroll, Conservation! Now, as expected for an overall book on a specialism, it starts with collections care. I'm really pleased with this chapter. It covers stuff that I didn't know about before working on this episode, like backing boards, and also gives a realistic attitude to the museum environmental controls. When addressing loans and transport, it also covers the practicalities of packing crates and microclimates, the good and the bad. The final chapter is Structural Treatments and Readily Reversible Interventions. I did feel that some of the introductory paragraphs about justification and decision-making were a little opaque. A cleaning cycle feels unachievable to museums, to be honest, and I'd have liked to read something about collections accessibility or something in justifications for loan. But when the treatments themselves kick in, we get pleasingly specific 
and the tone seems to trust readers to make their own choices about the safe use of the information that's provided. The consolidation section is a particularly good example, as it really efficiently communicates quite a bit of technical information covering scenarios of different surfaces, types of damage, and environmental factors, both before and after treatments. Not all are the high intervention of consolidation, and the book ends with lining and inserts such as loose linings and canvas support boards. So when I look at books for a review, I always think about who the audience would be and how it would operate in use. In this case, the assumed knowledge is enough that it's probably best for conservators, and though it would serve as a good reference book for non-specialists and specialists, I'm actually going to read it cover to cover, because I think it will give me a really good starting point for caring for my museum's collections of paintings, and maybe learning some of the practical elements as well. It ends after 248 pages with a chunky index and a bibliography. Hey guys, Jenny here. As you may know, we don't get paid to create this podcast and running it costs a little bit of money every month. One of the ways that you can help with that, if you're so inclined and you like us and our work, um, then you can support us on Patreon. Uh, by joining us there, then you become one of our supporters and uh, yeah, you just help us help us stay online uh, and make sure that our content remains accessible to everyone, even in between seasons. If you'd like to support us in that way, you can head over to patreon.com slash the C word uh, and join us on any tier that you would like. Uh, it can be as little as $1 per month. That gives you access to exclusive content as well. And if that isn't your cup of tea, then we also take PayPal donations. Uh, yeah, and it goes straight to the upkeep of the website and keeping everything online and running smoothly. We know times are hard, so thank you for considering it and see you next season. Thanks for listening. We're the C Word and you've been listening to Aviva Bernstock, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next season for more conservation content. In the meantime, you can check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at the Seaword Podcast, find us on the Fediverse at the Seaword Podcast at Glamorous, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. As usual, this has been a Wooden Dice production. I sort of love when we have favourite materials and favourite tools. It's sort of so mm. satisfying to talk about. It's just so well, lovely. Tools, I mean, everyone's got their favourite, you know, some knackered old brush. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a knackered old brush? <laughs> Oh, I've got loads of knackered old brushes. <laughs>